sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is my regular co-host, Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican Factotum, Jay Carson. Hey, Jay, how are you doing? Good. I don't have anything clever to say again. That's, that's, that's fine. You'll have plenty of clever things to say in the course of the show, I am certain. How about that? That's, uh, a, yeah, well, yeah. that's a good way to kind of set you up. Uh, but uh, anyway, so we're going to answer some. We've had a lot of listener comments, questions, critiques, what have you. And so uh, we're going to just launch right into to getting at some of them. If you're ready, Jay. I'm ready. Okay, let's do it. All right. First off, there is Seth who writes, hey, guys. First, I just wanted to say that I really enjoyed the recent episode with Will and Brian. I felt like they did a great job talking about both the academic arguments for the left and right, but also their personal arguments. And we, we appreciate that. Of course, uh, Will, I think Will and Brian have been a, a great team so far, and actually they will be on the show next week. Um, so anyway, Seth, Seth has a question. He says, that said, uh-oh, that's always a problem. That said, I wanted to point out, what I thought was a contradiction in their coverage of the Democratic field for president and the Mueller investigation slash tax return issues. On one hand, when referring to the legal challenges faced by the Trump White House with Mueller and returns, they made a completely valid point that Democrats need and indeed should have policy differences with Trump as the highlight of their political efforts. However, when discussing candidates and especially Vice President Biden, they move to a discussion on electability. I'm curious as to how to define electability. In the discussion on the show, it seemed to focus on the, con- on the concept that center-right voters could potentially vote for a Democrat. I- I'm sure the reverse is also true from the conservative side. I don't understand how clearly defining policy issues and the idea of electability match up. When reviewing recent one-term presidents and opponents they lost to, it seems clear to me that electability, at least defined by appeals to the middle, is a liability. And then Seth ends his email by providing some context to kind of support this claim. So it seems to me, Jay, that kind of the crux of what, what Seth is actually asking is, well, on the one hand, Democrats are saying we need to we need to define ourselves in terms of our differences to Trump. And of course, I would say no one does that better than the most progressive Democrats, right? Sure. But on the other hand, there's this other school of thought that says, well, you need to find somebody who's electable, and that's not the people who define the differences the most, but it's these kind of centrist folks like uh, establishment folks like a Joe Biden, basically, it yeah. seems to me. So uh, what are your thoughts on this? And then I'll kind of chime in. Well, I, I think... Um you know, first of all, there's sort of, um, you know, campaigns run in different phases, right? And and in the, the primary phase, electability means one thing. Um, and then, you know, what actually comes to it. So when I, I think um, it's a little weird in terms of, of um, because Trump, I, I don't know that, that Trump has any particular, uh, well, I shouldn't say that because that's not quite true. But in terms of of policy, uh, Trump's not an idea guy, right? <laughs> no. I mean, he's got he's got except a on immigration yeah, and trade, yeah. Um, some of those kind of things, and even on trade, it's it's not necessarily 
uh, an ID, the idea uh, or ideology. It's more just he thinks this is a means to an end. It appears. Um, so uh, you know, in in that, it's it's sort of a, a not like a Reagan Mondale matchup, uh, but it's more voters are evaluating um, President Trump, which on this, the biggest issue of of pre- for President Trump is you know the Trumpism, right? The temperament, the um, the, the the craziness. Uh, so I think that's sort of. Um, and if you, you match Biden up against Trump there, I think it probably works well. Um, I think a lot of middle America, uh, will be, uh, if they have not already, um, would be scared off by some of the policy prescriptions of the farther left of, of a Bernie Sanders. Um, because look, those, those haven't been fully fleshed out in the media yet, but they will be. And I'm, I'm pretty confident when, when those actual details of, of well, what, what does Medicare for all mean? Uh, what are these real numbers for free college? What does free college mean? How are you really going to pay for it? Uh, I think that would scare off a lot of, of middle-class voters who, who may uh, have, have tired of just the, the Trump craziness, right? The, of, of the, you know, want the sort of return to normalcy. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they want um, uh, democratic socialism or, or, you know, something else like that. Yeah, and I largely, I largely agree with that. You know, I think, uh, I think it's important, obviously, to emphasize differences with Donald Trump, especially when he's doing things that are, I, you know, I would, I would argue, just you know, pretty, pretty awful. It's like saying, I will, I will release my tax returns, and I will not be incredibly corrupt, and that sort of thing. Right, but that, but and, that's not a policy. Issue. No, no, you're right. That, that that's yeah. a fair point. But, but I think also that you know i we hear from a lot of people who are significantly to the left of me and say but but i think this is really what the people want and i would say well yeah that's what people like you and maybe even i want in in right. a regard but i think that's a great recipe for building up really great margins in places that we're already going to win so it's a great it's a great way to build up big majorities in, in, in coastal, you know, in New York and California and other places. But I think it's also going to be a, a recipe for, you know, a, a narrow electoral college victory for Donald Trump. I know there's a lot of talk about how Bernie Sanders is the candidate who's best equipped to deal. I've, I've seen this from the progressive left to deal with Donald Trump. And I just think, I just think that's flat out. That's just flat out wrong. I mean, I'm a, and you might say, well, you know, that's just you, you coming at this as a centrist. Like, well, yeah, I guess it is because you know, I, I believe that centrism is, you know, is the, the politically smart thing in a way, even though some of my instincts are maybe a little more toward a slightly more leftist type of view. I mean, you remember, Jay, when during the primaries when it was Bernie and basically Bernie and, and Clinton, I got kind of on the Bernie bandwagon for a little yeah. while there with some things, but but, but in, I, in part, wasn't that also more a a personal ethics slash yeah I personality mean, issue? And again, because Bernie it wasn't so much people were interested in Bernie for the socialism, uh, but it was hey he's not Hillary. Yeah, yeah, and I think there was certainly part of that. But but so I mean, so to get to circle back to Seth's question, I think I think that in the end that the Democrats are going to regret it if they if they nominate somebody who is considerably 
further to the left than kind of your your median voter, you know, and I think that's going to come back and and hurt them. And I just want to remind folks that even though Hillary Clinton, for many reasons, was quite possibly the worst, you know, one of the worst candidates the Democrats have nominated in quite some time, she actually did win more votes considerably more votes and came very close, what, 77,000 votes or something like that within various states of winning the election. So if a Hillary Clinton, who certainly was no radical leftist, could do it, I think somebody like a like a, a Hickenlooper or a, or even a, I don't know, Buttigieg is, is in a far better position than somebody who's considerably further to the left like a Bernie Sanders. Yeah, no, I would, I would uh, tend to agree. Um, and and quite honestly, if I'm a Republican tactician, um, uh, what I would say is I would much rather have the 2020 election be about a battle of ideas than a battle over the personality of Donald Trump. Well, yeah, because well, I think I think we yeah, I think yeah. Republicans win on that idea question, uh, and the the you know Trump personality is is a much diff- uh, more difficult. Yeah. Uh, campaign. Well, at least if at least if the candidate is say you know like a Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, l- let me ask you this, kind of in in line with that, you know, uh, I think last week when I was doing the show, last week or week before, sorry, when I was doing the show with Kristen, uh, uh, she mentioned that the candidate actually that she was most concerned about Trump facing, she thought would be the biggest challenge was was Bernie Sanders. Uh, now you would disagree with that, right? Um. Yeah, I would. So, who, I think, who would you say in the current field is the one who you say, "Oh man, that that could be a rough matchup for the president." I would. I would think it'd probably be Biden. Yeah, I think Biden has his own kind of issues, but uh, right. maybe another. Uh, that's another. But uh, those. But here's the thing: but those issues uh, would not matter to the swing voters that we're talking about. I see what you're saying. Yeah, and 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 let's put it this way: the the far left. Uh, would get over those issues in order to vote against Donald Trump. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're right about that. They, they would, yeah. and and to the the middle America voter, uh, they would not. Uh, that that would not yeah. move the needle. I don't think. Yeah, I guess there's a part of me that maybe this is more of an emotional reaction, just saying like. Geez, Joe Biden, like who's the oldest white guy we can nominate, you know, in our party? It's like, oh God. So, but, but I think, yeah. And if I can kind of try to set that aside, I see your point on that. So, and I, I might be inclined to agree with you on that. And certainly we'll be talking a lot more about Joe, Joe Biden in the future. That's uh, yes, absolutely. That's sure. Anyway, on to our next question. Uh, Jessica writes, when Mike and Jay were talking about net neutrality, Mike kept on saying that Jay's position was outdated 20th century thinking. Uh, I'm for net neutrality, but saying that someone's thinking is outdated without explaining why it's outdated is, at best, an incomplete argument. Can Mike explain what he meant by outdated 20th century thinking? That yeah, one, that's a okay. That's a that's a fair question. Here's what I I, mean. I, I should I should say I just want to a a uh, one of a a hero of mine a mentor of mine was was once described by an opponent as as uh, having one of the greatest minds of the 19th century. <laughs> um, so I, I don't, I don't take, uh, I guess I don't, I don't take it personally. If Mike says I'm, I'm a yeah. uh, of 20th century thinking, but. Well, and let just to refresh, Jay, could you just kind of briefly sketch out your argument against net neutrality? Cause that's what I was reacting to. And just so in case people kind of came into this a little bit, a little bit later, um, and you used an analogy to the the, the postal service or other. Yeah. Can you can you just kind of briefly? Well, the, the analogy I, I use a lot is that 
look, if you're talking about net neutrality, what it is, is if you're going to mail an item, if I'm going to mail a letter to, to Mike, uh, I can do that with a 32 cent stamp and it will get there in about a day or two. Um, if I need to, to mail Mike something that is bigger, uh, or I need to make sure it gets there the next day, I can pay a, a often significantly higher fee if you, if you think about it, right? Even just a FedEx envelope or like 10, 15 bucks, that's still 10, 20 times uh, what I would pay for a single stamp. Um, but I can pay that and I can make sure it gets where it needs to go when it needs to be there. Uh, finally, if, if I need to ship uh, a, a, some like a, you know, a piece of furniture or, or something, um, Mike's a big workout guy. So if I, if I got him a gift of, of a you know, weight set, um, uh, that would, would certainly cost more to ship because it's, it's heavier, it's more stuff. Uh, and, and people would, would reasonably agree that, yeah, that's, that's not a, a crazy way to work this, um, that, that your payment, uh, for the transmission of, of this item is based on, uh, one, how, how soon you need it to be there and how big it is. And, and that's sort of what it comes down to the net neutrality. If you have, um, uh, if someone like Netflix or, or Amazon or, or a streaming service, um, that is is providing a whole ton of data that needs to get there right away. Um, it's not unreasonable for the service provider to charge more to that service uh, than they do to uh, somebody else. So uh, my my argument essentially is, is: look, if if you allow that, what it's going to do is it's going to encourage those big providers uh, and those those uh, service providers to spend more money on infrastructure, right? Because people are going to keep using more and more data, so they they will spend the money uh, to build more wires, more lines, so you can get your Netflix faster, and they can they can collect more on it, um, and that's that's a good thing. And I don't think that impacts your your guy uh, writing a blog in the basement um, or two guys on a Saturday doing a podcast where where you're you have a you know really not that same sort of uh, bandwidth that you're using up. Yeah, and what I was reacting to is uh, basically what I call the 20th century thinking is that my, my sense of this is that J, what Jay is saying in many cases is he's looking at it in his in his in your first uh, example of delivering whatever waits to me or something is you have two things here. You have the product and you have the delivery mechanism. Now, right. if you send if you send that that weight set to me and I can actually use some some new 45 pound extra 45 pound Olympic plates. Um, but if you sent me, say, two 45 pound Olympic plates, uh, you could send them by like really slow mail and say I get them mm -hmm. in two weeks or you could send them express overnight and I get right. them in a in a day. But either way, I still have at the end the exact same product. That doesn't change at all. So you have the product and the delivery mechanism. My point was that in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases with the internet, the product and the delivery mechanism cannot be separated because if you all of a sudden have slower delivery of say streaming video, that impacts the actual product. So it's not like you're getting the same thing, but just waiting sure. longer. And so that's what I meant about that analogy falling apart at a certain point. Just to but be how does my, I don't, I don't know how that analogy falls apart because it's sort of, um, okay, let me, let me put it this way. Let, let's do a, uh, a different analogy rather than the weight set. Let's, let's say, cause in, in my business, lots of times I have to send time sensitive documents. 
that those those documents, the speed of their delivery, their their efficacy and their importance, uh, their utility relies upon their arriving at a certain time. Um, I mean that that would still be the same analogy then, right? It would be. It certainly would be similar, but you still have that distinction between. Once you have the product, it is a separate thing. Whereas when you're talking about and a lot of the a lot of the more the newer uh, internet technologies and things that we're using it for, it requires a lot of bandwidth right away. And so if you say, well, we have this one video service that's well established, and you can get 5K quality video right away, and a startup that wants to do the same thing, but it can't be, but it it's not in the internet fast lane because there isn't net neutrality. All of a sudden, that puts them at a huge competitive disadvantage and effectively can lock in existing existing monopolies, basically, and and make uh, make development and competition much more difficult, especially for small entrepreneurs who are trying to get startups going. And that's the yeah. argument well, that I'd, I think. I'd, is- I'd, count, I'd counter though that that look the. The whole idea is if there's money to be made, there will be more companies that will will enter competition. And especially if you're not going to regulate uh, these providers like a utility, where you're sort of limiting the number of providers, uh, you're going to get that competition. Right. And what, what I'm saying is that, the, I mean, and this is what the the first FCC, I mean, the previous FCC said, is that in effect that uh, we we can have net neutrality because the providers are in effect utilities. And I think it's long overdue that we recognize not through the FCC, but through law that this, this is essentially a, a, a basic, almost essential public utility now and should be regulated as such. And, and I don't think really in the end, it should be the FCC that's doing that. I think Congress should pass legislation to do that. And, and I think even though you disagree with, with that conclusion, you would probably agree with me that certainly it would be far better for Congress to do this as opposed to the FCC just going back yeah. and forth. And, and, and yeah, it. and I mean that's that's my default position yeah. is typically I'd rather see something done by legislation than by rule. Um, me too. But but uh, as far as the the utility again, the problem you run into with with utilities is that that ends competition and the utility gets to set the price and often becomes uh, essentially rent seeking. Uh, and I think that's that is the greater threat uh, to innovation and uh, uh, speeding up uh, the internet and providing more service lanes uh, than than the idea that someone might have to. I mean, again, I just I, I don't. It's it's never it's never, and I think you you admitted this that your your uh, reasons for being for net neutrality is because it would solve a problem that hasn't really occurred yet. Right. Could occur. Yeah, right. Because uh, because right now, Internet providers haven't set up slow and fast lanes and that sort of thing. Right. Exactly. It's a it's a preemptive kind of thing to prevent the problem that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and my, my position would be if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Or if it becomes a problem, then then we'll take it up then. But yeah, well, I yeah. OK, let's move on. Uh, let's see. Last week. Uh, let's see. Uh, Last week, who, who's writing this question? I guess you should find out that. It's an anonymous person. No, it's somebody. <laughs> I, okay, no, we got it. Okay, sorry about that. Uh, Shane uh, wrote in and he said, last week, Trey and Ken talked about homelessness, specifically why so much money is being raised to rebuild Notre Dame when homelessness is much more important cause. And uh, Shane wrote, oh my God, empty talking around homelessness. It shows the disconnect on the topic that has progressives upset. Clearly, they missed the point. 
I love you guys, I truly do. But the disconnect from the information that shows that fighting homelessness is good business and the basic human decency aspect as well. So it sounds to me like what Shane is saying is like, again, this issue of we raise all this money to rebuild a cathedral, but yet we can't deal with, uh, with this problem of homelessness, which is a much more real and, and pressing and serious problem, a lot of people would say. And, and the, the point that Ken made on the show for people who didn't catch that was basically that, well, in part, rebuilding cathedral is a very well-bounded sort of thing. As a clear start and end point, it doesn't require sort of an endless amount of money in that sense. You can say, well, we can do this for, say, $3 billion and it can be done in 10 years. And then, boom, the cathedral looks kind of like it did, right. you know, before it burned. I, I don't say this often, but Ken's absolutely right. Yeah. But, but, I, but I think it gets into this, you know, why aren't we then? The more fundamental question, I think Ken was right on that too, but the more fundamental question is, why aren't we doing more to deal with this very serious problem that, you know, doesn't get the kind of dramatic attention that cathedrals and, you know, certainly a lot of us on the left would say, absolutely, we need to spend a lot more on this. We need to devote a lot more resources to this to make sure in the first place that people don't fall into homelessness, homelessness, and that involves having a much more robust social safety net. And I certainly think we absolutely need that sort of thing, much more along the lines that we see in a lot of countries in, in Western Europe that have you know, perfectly fine and in many cases better economic growth than we do, better intergenerational mobility. And I think that is absolutely something we should be doing. And so if that's the point you're making, Shane, I absolutely agree we need to do that. Jay, you maybe have a different view on that. Um, well, yes and no. I mean, again, I, I'd say there's, there's one, there is a human nature thing of, um, when you're trying to raise money, charitable money, if you can tie it to a, a building, an event, a thing, you raise more money. Um, I'm not saying that's, that's right, wrong or indifferent, but, um, I've served on the boards of a number of nonprofits for many years now. And, and that is the truth. All right. I mean, it's 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 one of these crazy sort of things of if you're trying to raise money because, hey, we need operational funds uh, to keep the lights on and keep doing what we're doing. Everybody's eh. Uh, if you if you say, hey, we're going to build a new wing for this or that, the the, the pocketbooks open up. Um, it's just sort of a, a weird human nature sort of sort of thing, right? Oh yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I think that's that's one of the things is it's it's easier and part of it is the the discreteness of it right and the the knowing what you're paying for sure uh, I think that plays into it so if the idea is I'm going to pay to have Notre Dame uh, re refurbished uh, well then then okay you know what you're getting and um, uh, you can look up uh, uh, you know ten years from now and say I helped uh, rebuild that um, something that like homelessness is is just a lot more amorphous. Right, which is why uh, I think, you know, and, and you've probably seen these things, obviously, you get these, uh, these appeals to say, help this specific child in Africa yeah. or someplace like yeah, that. Yeah, the picture. And you get letters and that sort of thing. And that, yeah, it personalizes it in a way where you're saying, well, we're giving money on these people that you'll never see all of a sudden have a place they can move into. That, yeah, it doesn't feel as, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and again, homelessness is a, um, with, with something like a Notre Dame, uh, or any sort of building, once you fix it, it's fixed. Yeah. And it stays fixed. Yeah, exactly. Uh, homelessness homelessness is, uh, is sort of a dynamic 
problem. Yeah. And, you know, you can find people housing, but that doesn't mean they stay in it. And, and you know, the reasons, you know, the reasons for Notre Dame was, well, it, it, it caught fire and, and now we need to rebuild it. Uh, reasons for homelessness, there are, yeah. uh, you know, legion, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's drug abuse and mental, mental health, health issues drugs, and all kinds of stuff. You've got housing yeah. issues, you got income inequalities. Yeah, there's there's a zillion different variables there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, one, one solution that might prevent uh, or or rescue someone from homelessness won't necessarily work for another person who's homeless. Yeah. And, and so sir, I, I think that's that's sort of the thing is, is look, rebuilding cathedrals is that's an easy thing. And I'm not and I'm, I don't think it's it's a uh, improper thing to spend money on either. Right. I mean, it's it's a treasure of, yeah. of Western civilization. Um, you know, you could make the same argument about, well, why, you know, why should we support, you know, an art museum? Sure. Uh, why shouldn't we support homelessness? Well, all right. I mean, that's that's sort of, uh, you know, people can make their own decisions and, and, and know how they support it. But yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. Certainly you go you go down that road and um, and all of a sudden almost nobody's a good person. But maybe, you know, yeah. there's some there are some utilitarian thinkers that would say, well, yeah, we just don't want to face up the fact that that uh, we're not at heart very good people and you know where we're spending money on things that are that we like and are pretty and meaningful to us when other people are starving to death and we just want to turn our we just want to turn away from our our lack of humanity and that's a at some level that that's an argument that i think that has some has some resonance i don't know well i think there's also and i i pointed this out in the, the facebook thing there's there's always and to me it, it's a little bit i don't know i, I bristle a little bit of of you know woke billionaires step on, up up and say uh, look, I want to spend some money to rebuild this uh, church. Um, and then a lot of other people who probably don't contribute nearly as much as these, these folks do, either in taxes or in direct uh, charitable contributions, uh, start criticizing their their funding priorities. I think that's sort of, to me, it's kind of a none of your damn business, sure. right? It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's your money. You can do with it what you yeah. want, right? And my response yeah. would be, it's like, that's the problem is we need to tax you at a lot more progressive rate. <laughs> we need to take your money. Exactly. And well, I would, uh, I wouldn't put some, it that some way. Some people might, might equate being able to do with you want, what you want, uh, make charitable contributions, what you want with your own money as a, uh, as, as an element of, of freedom. Uh, sure. Absolutely. But, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, let's move on. Uh, here's some, something from Scott. Uh, Scott has sort of a, a two-parter. You'll like this. Um, Jay. Part one, uh, let's start a contest, Scott says. Who will be the first indicted in the Obama spying scandal? <laughs> McCabe is the logical choice. He's been the subject of a grand jury inquiry for a while. However, he doesn't have the name recognition that Comey has. So many choices. The evidence against Strzok and Page is deep. Maybe it will be a twofer. So I, I, I guess Scott would maybe want us to... to say who's going to be indicted here. And I would say, I don't think anyone's going to be indicted, but we'll see. And I, Jay, my view on this whole thing, and I've said this to Scott uh, personally, but I'll say it here is, you know, I, I think that if there is credible evidence that the FBI or other law enforcement engaged in some sort of illegal activity against a presidential candidate and then the president, that that is incredibly serious and it should be investigated. And I know the, the Department of Justice's inspector general is looking at that right now. And Barr says he's going to be looking at that. And if if indictments come out of that, we absolutely will talk about that. And but until that happens, I'm not willing to speculate based on media reports. That's kind of my my take on that. OK. And I think it'll be McCabe. Do you think 
<laughs> do you think that there will be indictments? Uh, I, listen, I think there is going to be a a serious reckoning, and and I, I just want to walk through this this with you because, um, and, and this is something we don't we haven't talked about, and and for that very reason is we don't want to get into speculation, uh, or just going rumors, and and Scott has been uh, persistent in this, and and rightfully so, but I I think what what we're looking at now, based on what we do know. Uh, is there seems to be a high likelihood that spying on a presidential campaign occurred. I think we sort of agree on that. Uh, The New York Times reported that the FBI sent an undercover agent uh, to London uh, to talk with um, Mm -hmm. uh, Papadopoulos. Um, uh, That's that's sort of extraordinary. Uh, and, and again, the, uh, bar's position is, you know, spying occurred. It's, it's up, you know, I'm going to take a look to see if it was, if it was warranted. If this spying, uh, is based on, uh, the dossier, uh, even primarily on the dossier, I think there's a, a big issue. And if we're concerned about Russian interference in our political system, the first place we should look to is the, uh, the dossier, which was compiled by a foreign intelligence, uh, former foreign intelligence officer, from Russian sources, um, and, and let, let me just make make the the, the point that um, say what you will about Vladimir Putin, um, you, you'd agree you'd agree with me that the guy runs a pretty tight ship. Yeah, right? he does. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and and I think you'd also agree that look, if if Putin had the goods, had a a had the U.S. president as as a foreign as as his agent. Uh, uh, whether willingly or just through through compromise or 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 something like that, um, that would be probably the intelligence bombshell uh, of the century, if not of oh, yeah. of all of history. Mm-hmm. And you would also agree that Putin would probably be a kind of guy who would not let that information circulate to a wide range of people. He would certainly try to keep that under his hat. Yeah. And so, to me, then. The idea that Christopher Steele could glean information about this bombshell from Russian sources. Uh, well, I, would I, I see what you're saying. Two things. It, it would likely mean to me that um, those those that leak was was authorized by Putin. Uh, because I, my sense is, if if you're leaking this kind of information about the greatest I see what you're saying. I, and I disagree. You, you probably get a, a call from you know HR yeah. or something. Yeah, I, uh, I, I would it. disagree in a sense because I guess. On Putin, I would say he certainly is a repressive guy, but I think the extent to which any chief executive has just this total control, the idea that there aren't competing power structures and things like that, and folks with different motives within various levels of the Russian government, that Putin is this somehow all-seeing, all-knowing Oz in Russia is just simply uh, uh, is simply a media creation uh, that you know Trump that that no leader has that kind of power, especially the lead over of as large and fractious a country as Russia is. And so I guess I would disagree with that premise. Now, another thing you mentioned is, is this extraordinary, the things that the FBI did? There's no question that you want to use the word spying. Sure, spying occurred, and it was legally authorized as far as we know. Now, and, you know, Barr said as much, and, you know, this, this relates to another question that Dan wrote in asking about that that report that you mentioned that was in the New York Times, I believe, on uh, a, a few days ago about that Papadopoulos thing. So, yeah, of course, this is extraordinary. But we have to remember that the claim was also extraordinary and that if yeah. you have credible evidence that uh, that a major party nominee 
is somehow working with the Russians. Well, what do you do with that? You just say, well, that seems pretty dangerous. We should probably just not deal with that because it could get us in trouble if we're, I mean, no, you can't just, I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you agree that if you're in charge of the FBI and someone gives you evidence that makes it look like, hey, this could be going on, you have to do something. Yeah, but I, I think the the proper thing and one of the first things to do, and, and this is something we haven't seen, and I'm not saying we should have necessarily seen it, um, if the the uh, administration knew that the Russians were interfering in the election, uh, why why didn't we take other counterintelligence steps? Why was it aimed at at Trump and not at the Russians, right? Or why wasn't there some sort of... Um, well, I think uh, a lot of the stuff was aimed at, at the Russian. I mean, certainly, at least based on, you know, the, on, on the Mueller report, most of the indictments, I think, were against, you know, sure. Russians and so forth. So I but think... That was for the, that was for like the, the Facebook, you know, meme, or the farm kind of thing, which is, which, which is, is kind of peanuts. I, I, I would disagree with that. I, you know, I would disagree with that entirely, but, but, but I guess, well, and I guess this is why, right, we haven't talked about this a whole lot, because now we're getting very much into the realm of speculation. Yeah. But I can assure Scott and everyone that when reports come out and when we actually have solid information, we'll definitely talk about this, you know. So okay. I, um, I want to throw one, yeah, one more ahead. piece in. Because yeah, to me, this isn't speculation. This is more a matter of deduction. Um, uh, Russian, Russian lawyer, uh, the lovely Natalia Veselnitskaya, did I say that right? Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. yeah. Um, who participated in the Trump Tower meeting. Uh, she was also affiliated with Fusion GPS, correct? I mean, there's no there's no dispute. That, so Fusion GPS, the people who published the dossier releasing the biggest state secret ever, um, and they also have someone who is close. I mean, she's described as being close with, with Putin. Uh, she participates, works with them in releasing this biggest state secret ever. Um, how is she still alive? Yeah, right? this, see, this is why I won't, this is why I don't want to okay. go down this road because all right, all right. you're starting to sound like Michael Moore. Um, and so this is where I sort of check out on these things. All right. but, uh, well, the, 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 uh, we will, we will wait, but that's, that's just sort of my, um, sure. You're my, my deduction based deduction, on you call where, it deduction where, I call it cherry picking came from and who controlled the information you call it deduction I'll call it for now argument by innuendo that is your logical fallacy I will say anyway in, in, innuendo that that Putin is is uh yeah yeah okay all right um the, the second part there was a second part to Scott's oh, question okay. uh about the impeach all this impeachment talk he said do you guys think this is bad for the country I listened to some old clips of the mainstream media about the Clinton impeachment and they seem to be reporting that it was a bad idea and that impeachment should be an extraordinary remedy to address an imminent danger or an especially egregious violation of the law. Do you think we're there? I'm very concerned about how flippant the MSM and Democrat politicians are at throwing that term around and that it will instill in the minds of Americans that we can use the impeachment process as some kind of recall vote when we don't like the outcome of an election. So what do you think, Jay? I, I think I think Scott, I would say amen to that. Yeah, I, I mean that's that's exactly right. That's that's sort of my concern, is that are are we now entering into an age where uh, this is just a matter of of we impeach presidents we don't like? Yeah, and I would I would agree with the basic concern that we have to be very. And I've said this, you know, Jay, a number of times on the show that it's a very serious thing to overturn. Have just Congress overturned the results of a of the Democratic election, 
But I also, and I think that we should be very wary of normalizing impeachment as kind of a political right. tool. But by the same token, I would say that Donald Trump, his disregard for democratic norms isn't ordinary, and it is, in fact, you know, extraordinary. I would say that was also the case when it came to Richard Nixon. I don't think it was the case when it came to uh, when it came to Bill Clinton, certainly. Um, but uh, but so I understand the worry, but I I, I don't really think that it is necessary. I mean, I think that you know Donald Trump is an extraordinarily uh, not to say bad president doesn't really quite capture it, but I don't think that impeachment talk is out of line. And I don't even, I mean, I certainly think it. If could you be, really, really don't like him. Yes. Has nothing okay. to do with it. No, because liking or not liking his policies or thinking he's a disgusting human being or not. No, it's, it's the, it's the contempt he has for the rule of law, which I think is the bigger problem. And I would feel that way about any president who had that sort of contempt for the truth and rule of law. And so that to me is a very different thing. Okay, I, w- I would say, look, the the Constitution allows impeachment for high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, in the case of Nixon, uh, there was a a credible obstruction of justice uh, of being an unindicted co-conspirator uh, to obstruct justice um, uh, by you know essentially firing people who for for reasons to prevent things from coming back on his campaign. Um, and it's it's not just for violating democratic norms. And uh, with sure. Clinton. The the high crime and misdemeanor was essentially perjury to a federal court in an ongoing um, uh, court proceeding, which that that fits the the definition. I mean, it, sure. it's a felony. Um, and and with Trump at this point, what we have is uh, we no have high crime and misdemeanor that's that's been <laughs> put out there yet. No we, collusion. Um, and well, and sort of a no finding on obstruction of justice. So. Plenty of plenty of evidence that that Mueller basically teed up and said to Congress, "Here, there's a lot of stuff here. I'm not going to." So, but we we we've already talked about that. But there's there's plenty there. Certainly, I would say. Also, one of the charges against uh, against Nixon, of course, was contempt of Congress, and uh, I think that's uh, potentially a, a charge. Yeah, that's not going to. Here's the thing, though. You're never going to let's let's put it this way. If if contempt of Congress is a high crime and misdemeanor, then impeachment means nothing. Impeachment essentially means a uh, failure to, uh, you know. Yeah, but high crimes and misdemeanors is whatever Congress decides. I mean, this is a this is a political yeah, determination. But, but again, you, you get in out. sort of sort of a, a you know closed loop there. That that if if you know Congress says jump and the president doesn't jump as high as Congress wishes, well, we'll impeach you. Um, hey, and that, if you have the that votes, that would essentially that would essentially um, give give Congress uh, absolute impeachment power for anything that they just don't like, and that's well, they have it now. That's though. not the Constitution. They have it now. I mean, it, you know, all it requires is if if I mean, there's no recourse that Donald Trump has said that if he were impeached, he would take it to the Supreme Court, which is a nonsensical thing. But you know, that's okay because his Twitter comments are often nonsensical things and they're not really designed to make logical sense. There's no recourse to an impeachment and conviction vote. There's nothing that a president who's impeached and convicted can do. And so it's really up to Congress, the, uh, the House and the Senate, to decide, does this rise to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors? As you point out in many other issues, well, what's the remedy for that? The remedy for that's the ballot box. Yeah. Well, so, no, I think that's right. But I think uh, the farther out on the limb Congress goes, and if they, if they define a high crime and misdemeanor as not doing what we want, 
that's a very tough political sell. Yeah, and, and they and there's and no. I think I think you can make a really good constitutional argument that at that point you no longer have uh, three co-equal branches. Sure, maybe at that point, but it seems to me there's no evidence that Congress really is is seriously considering that, especially in this case when there's plenty of feasible strong evidence that the, the that the president has done things that would fit into the category of high crimes and misdemeanors for any reasonable person. Okay. All right. But but yeah, but yeah, did not did not raise to the level of the special counsel who looked at it didn't think but, they were. But. Well, actually he did think they were. He just uh, but that's another that's another issue right. you're you're mischaracterizing I would say. But I'm anyway, just like Bill Barr. Just like Bill. Yes, exactly. Just like Bill Barr. Absolutely, Jay. All right. Um Seth writes, hey, guys, in the most recent Wednesday show, Mike and both, not, not anymore in most recent, sorry, it's been a couple of weeks, Mike and Jay both discussed passing a law requiring major party candidates to release 10 years of tax returns. Both seemed to think this was a good idea. Well, I don't. Since there wasn't anyone to present an opposing opinion, I thought I would offer mine. All right. Yeah. This such law requires the belief that voters are effectively too disinterested, perhaps stupid, to realize the potential pitfalls of electing a person who refuses to release returns. To the contrary, candidate Trump's refusal to release his tax returns was well known and covered at length. Yet voters still chose him. They made an informed decision. Would they have made a different choice had they seen the returns? Possibly, but they knew they weren't going to see them, accepted that, and voted for him. To me, that's the democratic way to approach this issue. I should be able to vote for whomever I choose, provided they meet the standards set forth in the Constitution. This is also my argument against term limits. The only things that get limited with term limits are the voters who can't vote for their incumbents. I just don't think that as many barriers as possible should be removed and or not built between the voters and who they are willing to elect. So what do you think, Jay? I think he's, he's not wrong. So then are you changing your position then? I'm not sure. I'm not. What was my position before he said you that actually, I, I agree with? That. I think I think my sense, my position was probably like, look, I don't, I wouldn't oppose something like that, but I I don't know that it's necessary, right? I think you would see the necessity for it, and and I I think my position was something well, if something like that passed, man. Eh. Well, and and I guess I would say that I have less faith in the public, and uh, not so much necessarily in their intelligence, but in their focus. Than Seth does, you know, his argument, and this is the Trump argument too, is that uh, the public decided they didn't care about this. I'd say, you know, Democrats certainly tried to focus their attention on it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, there was just nothing to see there because he refused to release them. And and I would say that oftentimes there are there are tons of things going on behind the scenes that people don't necessarily think are a big deal until all of a sudden the evidence is presented. To them, and that's not because people are stupid. It's because people have lives and other things are going around, going on, and that sort of thing. But and so, oftentimes, I think the public needs to be shown these things, and just you know, and just saying that well, if the public cared about transparency, they would demand transparency. I don't buy that argument, essentially. You know, and 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 so I think sometimes that it's important to mandate. A certain amount of transparency, and in this case, this is one of these. This is one of these instances. Past presidents have have sort of understood that this is, you know, a, a good thing to do. Now, Donald Trump broke this norm, and I, I still, I very much support uh, legal, you know, a law saying that all major party presidential nominees will release ten years of their their tax returns. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of. Has Seth convinced uh, I'm, you? I'm coming around. I'm coming around to Seth's position. I think that's. You know, 
Yeah. But again, I think, yeah, to me, that's just, uh, to me, this is part of my whole critique of the whole kind of uh, uh, conservative slash libertarian view of human nature as these. Just vote for who you want. Yeah. No, no, no. As these, as these rational decision makers unencumbered by anything. And I think, you know, that's just not how people are in the real world. And people are under various pressures and people just can't necessarily parse all this stuff and take all the time that we do. And, and people need to be helped out to be shown some of these things and then they can make up their minds. And so, you know, saying, oh, well, people have these, have this ability to choose. It's easy to say from our positions of, of privilege, but oftentimes that's just not the case in reality. Oh dear. No, I, I would just say, look, I think, I think Seth is right in that uh, there's, you know, there's a rule that, that, you know, you have a court essentially that look, if somebody's uh, refuses to provide evidence, you're allowed to make in uh, the the impute that that evidence is not favorable to them. Uh, so the Democrats uh, have and did, and they made that case, and they said, look, uh, you know, Trump is probably on the payroll of all these foreign governments. He's probably cheating on his taxes, and and the fact that he won't show you just proves it. Um, they they made that that uh, argument at length, and uh, I mean, my thought is I. I think it's a better idea to release your tax returns just because you avoided that argument and having to do it. But, you know, he chose otherwise. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, so. Well, 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 yeah. And and I think just from a policy perspective, it makes a lot of sense because there are potentials for conflicts of interest and so forth. And so I think people that, that should be public record basically. Let's, let me ask you this though. What, what else should be mandated of a presidential, uh, candidate in terms of disclosure if you if you're going to mandate uh 10 years of tax returns what else would you require that that the candidate disclose okay i hear the slippery slope i would say i would say it's limited to two things i would say uh independent medical reports and i would say the uh, tax returns okay well i mean independent medical reports how who's that means that they don't get they don't get to choose their doctor to do their physical. Basically, I would say, you know, you have the Trump's guy like saying, the doctor, "Oh my God, yes. he's like a he's like an Avenger." Practically, he's so tough and yes, cool, well. and all that sort. So those are the two things that I say. Those kind of that sort of hidden information that can be a that can make a real difference. And you know, I I this is kind of going off on a tangent, but I don't care. Um, but yeah, I've raised concerns about all the septuagenarians we have running for president. Right. And your age, I think, was was the gist that I I gleaned from the Facebook post. But yes, from from what? Oh, yeah, from the Facebook post. But no, because I mean, certainly, you know, in this is a very serious concern to me because, of course, we know now, right, that in the second Reagan term, that uh, according to a lot of reports, he was maybe showing some signs of the Alzheimer's that later, you know, ended that he later contracted in full blown form and. This matters a lot. The presidency is an incredibly demanding job in a lot of ways. And so I want to know, I think it's important for voters to know that the person who's running for that job is, is, is psych is, is physically, mentally up to that task. And also that, you know, they don't have these kind of conflicts. And so I think that that should be part of the, part of the public record and be part of the deliberations, the information that people have available to them. How about how about then the mandatory cognitive testing and also fifty um, yard dash? Well, you know, I, obviously you can take it to the point of ridiculousness, but again, your logical fallacy here is a slippery slope argument. What's reasonable and what's not? I think certainly 
that can be decided through the legislative process. And you, you push stuff that's not reasonable, well, it won't make its way through the process. But I can make, I think, a very strong case. I think I have that some basic health results and some financial disclosure is reasonable. And of course, there is basic financial disclosure forms that all candidates have to file right now. Okay. So. All right. Well. All right. On, okay. Well, on that note, we will. We will wrap things up. Thanks, everyone, for listening to us today. And, you know, if you want to get in touch with us, it's really simple to do. Uh, Maybe you want to be featured on a future show. It's mail at politicsguys.com. You can also comment on our Facebook page, and that's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We are also on Twitter at politicsguys. And, hey, if you are able and willing to support the show financially, that would be great to do that. Just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys or politicsguys.com slash support. And if you can't support the show, uh, also, if you could just subscribe and you can do that really easily through whatever app you're listening to and share the show with your friends, neighbors, uh, whoever, really, that we would appreciate it. And uh, we would appreciate it. Jeez, Jay, it's already been a long day. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Anyway. Anyway, we do appreciate it, and uh, we'll end with that. The executive producer of the Politics Guys, Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, and Benji Fishman. Today's show produced by Michael Baranowski and Jay Carson. We will be back with a new midweek show, well, next Wednesday. We hope you'll join us. Can I just say one more thing? Sure. How much fun would a would a you know 50-yard dash push-up contest slash presidential combine be? Oh my God, that would be. If we were to do that that way, right? That would be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I guess this is like our little kind of like, like, you know, the Avengers movie, the little thing after the credits. So this is. Yeah, exactly. This is after the credits here. Now, maybe we'll eat shawarma one day. Anyway, okay. Well, that does it for today. Thanks, everyone.